and welcome to Watch the Throne. What a lovely day. This is episode 39, Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I live, I die, I live again. I'm Mike Manzi. Witness me! Before we get into our guests, we had to bring on two heavy hitter guests here on the Watch the Throne podcast. I want to say, Mike, you know, we've been talking for almost a year now about Charlie Theron movies, and yep. I didn't realize how much it would mimic the Fury Road in that, like, <laughs> we just have to, like, get through it. But now we are riding Shiny and Chrome into Valhalla. We are here now. Yes. We are, basically, the reason we did this podcast is this movie. We have made it. Yeah, dare I say it's been a little mediocre up until this part. Mm. Um, but I do sort of feel like, in a way, I relate a little more to Max. We've sort of traversed the movie wastelands of the Gulag Salt Flats and have finally arrived in sight of some Aquacola to sort of quench our movie thirst. And what I realized, and what I also told you today, was that we've been calling the awards the golden wallpaper, the golden teeth, the golden corn, whatever, but that's not... I mean, we just use the golden because of the golden peaches Peaches and the golden hot dogs. Right, yeah. But it's really... we got to do for the show, we got to do the black and chrome whatever, like the black and chrome wallpapers, (laughs) the black and chrome corn, the black and chrome teeth, whatever it's going to be... You know, the Black and Coal or Black and Chrome Guzzling Awards. I don't know. <laughs> but whatever it's going to be, it's going to be Black and Chrome and not Gold because those are the colors of Watch the Throne. Yeah, I don't know how we didn't remember that going into this. Because we're not whole... good at this. <laughs> no, we're, we're not as good as... Yeah, we're not. But we're here now, and we, yeah, the, I like that you picked up on that. The, the shiny mm-hmm. chrome is definitely the way to go for the award this year. So like I said, we do have two guests for this. They are both shiny. They are both chrome. First up, from the Wistful Thinking podcast, representing both hosts from that show who wanted to be on this episode, we have Jordan Pullen-Clark. Hello, Jordan. Hi! I am so sorry. I've apologized to Kara multiple times that she could not be on this episode because this is like her shit entirely so i hope I know, you but do it's also us mine. and her and yourself proud it's also mine and you it's a podcast so you guys can't see how big i'm smiling right now <laughs> and then and i have a <laughs> i have a water bottle in my hands and i'm gripping it really really hard i'm just so excited <laughs> if i may mention just quickly joy before we intro our next guest uh kara is going to be on my crossover episode for my oh, yes. show so for third time's a charm next month we reviewed Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. So I've been watching all these movies all month long, and it's been a blast. Well, coming soon to the Cage Club Podcast Network, whether it's on September 3rd or whenever, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, an epically long but probably wonderful episode of Third Time's a Charm. Also with us, also shiny, also chrome, we have Chris Podcast, Mattiello. Hello, Chris. Hello. Uh, my blood type is O positive, if you need to know in advance, which means I'm probably fucked in the apocalypse. <laughs> You're the universal donor? <laughs> is it high-octane feral blood? No, negative is the universal donor. Positive just sucks. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad that we have a doctor on here to explain blood to us, because I oh, knew that an o organic mechanic. Nice. I can receive from, like, nobody, essentially, so R.I.P. me. R.I.P. you. Well, so here we are, Fury Road, the movie that we were like, oh, yeah, we'll do Charlize Theron, because her movies are great. <laughs> she's got Fury Road, she's got Atomic Blonde, she's got Young Adult. The rest will be good. Nope. Uh, but here we are. It, you know, like when we got to The Matrix or John Wick, it was like, mm-hmm. oh, this was almost worth the entire journey just because this movie is so goddamn good. Yeah. I saw this movie first. So here's here's the scene. I want to let's, let's go through everybody 
when we first saw this movie. So I saw this movie at a special advanced screening. Oh, humble brag! Uh, at the Alamo Draft House in Austin. I remember I was doing like a they had like a weekend film thing called I think Noir City. So I was seeing like nine like thirties and forties noir movies all in black and white at one draft house location. And I had to skip two because I was like, oh, I got a free ticket to see Fury Road. This shit's probably going to rule. Let me go do that. And so I skipped two movies. I went down to a different draft house, got there. I think, I want to say George Miller was there. I want to say maybe Robert Rodriguez was there. I don't remember. I know there was an interview. What I do vividly remember is that I ordered a pizza before the movie started. The pizza got to me about 45 minutes in, and by the time I picked up my first slice, the pizza was cold because I could not take my eyes off the screen. <laughs> that this movie is so engrossing and just so balls out, ovaries out, whatever adjective, whatever noun you want to use, from the beginning to the end that I was just like, I can't take my eyes off the screen because if I miss a single frame, I'm going to regret it. And it is so goddamn good, and I love this movie, and I can't wait to talk about it for what will probably be like, I don't know, six hours. Yeah, I get it. We get I get into like my whole history of Mad Max over on the other show, but as far as this film, I went to the movies and saw it alone, and I just remember sitting in the theaters from the opening, being a Mad Max fan, sitting from the opening, very much anticipating this release from the start, just being engrossed with this thing. Like it's it's just from the jump, it's just intense and extreme and, and barely ever lets up to give you a breath and when it does i feel like your eyes are are like looking all around the frame to take in the madness that is that is going on on screen and everything but but i I remember sitting there by myself like it was a pretty big crowd and all the reactions in the theater were awesome like that's what really got me is like this was one of those movies where i was really glad people were like making noise and stuff because everybody it was playing really well for everybody we all it all felt like we were on the same page we wanted to be there we were getting more than i think we were expecting and seeing stuff that haven't seen since and hadn't seen before and it's there's just nothing like this movie and i just think it's amazing and then later on i mean we went i went and they re-released it in the black and chrome edition in the theater Mm -hmm. near me so i got to see that version also i went back to the theaters to check that out i like that it's on a different level i think i like the color more i kind of miss the reds of the blood and the fire to go along and maybe the rust as well to go along with the chrome but whatever version is just it's just great jordan i live in a really small town that has a movie theater but it's like everything there is super old and like not great i saw this there with two of my roommates and i just remember that the sound was shitty and the picture was shitty and i still loved it so 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 much and like really the only thing i remember about like after the first time that i saw it was that my roommate and i couldn't stop talking about do warrior like do warrior changed our lives <laughs> breakout stars <laughs> and i just knew that i had to watch it like a hundred more times i love it chris right when it came out you know i'd already gotten really good word of mouth before it actually dropped uh and a friend and i and a nice tall bubbly glass of water uh went to see this movie shiny and green into valhalla and i must have looked like a like a four-year-old seeing santa for the first time or something like that because i just was my mouth must have been wide open my eyes were extremely wide uh, and I just took it all in, and like the moment, the moment that it was over, I think it was like a matinee. It was like an early, an early show because I didn't have anything to do at that point in my life, like work or anything like that. Um, but I'm pretty sure I saw it again that night because it was that good and that exciting. 
uh, and perfect in every way. Oh, that's awesome. I can't, I can't remember. I think the last time I saw the same movie twice in a day was Batman Returns when it came out in theaters, like when I was like Not eight or nine one, or whatever. Opinion. But that's awesome that you saw it twice yeah. in one day. Immediately that's... called people to, to, to come and see it. I feel really jealous of all of you that it sounds like everybody's seen it more than once in the theater except me, and I've only gotten to see it once really big like that. I think I only saw it once in the theaters because I just mm. generally, I should have seen it again, but I only saw it the once. So you're not alone, Jordan. Okay, good. Um, I did look it up in my email that at the screening that I saw, George Miller was there, Hugh Keys Byrne was there, and Morton Joe himself, toe cutter from the first one. Nice. And the uh, Q&A was moderated or led by Robert Rodriguez. So wow. I remember there was even a thing in the trivia, I think. I don't know if it was at this screening or another one, but like Robert Rodriguez just like a, a fanboy gushing over this because like 80% of this movie is practical effects. And I remember him just being like, how did you do this? Like, like how how is this possible? I mean, yeah. for somebody who like is so gritty and like shoots and chops and mixes and everything like Robert Rodriguez is one of those like gritty filmmakers who we're going to do eventually at some point on Cinemakers I think because he's just one of those guys who like mm-hmm. does everything like you know himself and he's like let's do it practical let's do it cheap and here it's just sort of like the ultimate like let's just figure out a way to do this and just do it right yeah. it's so incredible that's one of my favorite parts about this movie it's the reason I like the fast movies too it just looks so much yeah. better when it's real and I had spent like 30 minutes before we recorded just like watching videos of them making it and it's just the most incredible thing yeah. it's oh I can't even like they sat down and they were like what's all the craziest stuff we can do <laughs> okay what's the level right above that Let's do it. And they did. <laughs> yeah, that's something I think about constantly while watching is just the logistics of this as far as, like, directing and filmmaking. Because, I mean, Rodriguez, I you know, I don't think he's alone in the community because I feel like I read something where the Cinemaker, we covered uh, Steven Soderbergh. Didn't, he, he was, like, he recently wrote something about he had seen this and was like, I couldn't imagine directing like a shot of this movie like it's just so crazy and beyond like what is being done out there as far as like complexity and practical effects and stuff so yeah i mean it's just it gets all the accolades and it deserves it those swing those swinging poles yeah it took them three months three months to do the swinging poles (laughs) i thought of circus i thought of you there with the swinging poles. well they hired they hired somebody from cirque to teach the stunt guys chinese pole that's part of what took so long in the world of the big blockbuster and connected universes and Hollywood studios that this movie exists it must be some sort of miracle I said that about Batman but that was more about uh, see um, uh, Cinemakers Christopher Nolan season Um, I said that about Batman but more about Nolan being kind of uh, a low-key guy directing Batman like that was a miracle this existing like 30 years and change after the last one which is kind of at that point been relegated to uh, a joke that this existed is is mind-blowing to me it's beautiful that it does but like it's it's stunning that they gave the guy who did happy feet so much money <laughs> and, and the another sequel as well to, i mean yeah, pigs run a sequel to his exploding car <laughs> yeah movies. pigs are thematic through the mad max movies as well which is kind of weird also but yeah and george miller was no spring chicken at this point either like he's in his 70s he's up there he's just crazy though like, that's it he's just crazy enough to get it done because this movie has faced lots and lots of setbacks like it almost never did happen you know and it kind of you're right it kind of is a miracle because every odd was against it yet here it is i mean a couple episodes ago mike when we did prometheus it was supposed to happen then like Charlize mm-hmm. was in it then and she dropped out of prometheus so that she could do this movie then it got delayed again 
and she was like, okay, I can do Prometheus, and had to take the smaller part. I was looking in the IMDb Tribune, as Chris calls it, and it seems like this, I mean, this movie was supposed to start, like, was supposed to come with, like, 2003, starring Mel Gibson, and that, that didn't happen. Jeremy Renner really wanted to be Max, and, like, Channing Tatum was considered for the role of Max. Like, it feels like this movie was sort of in development, or, like, bandied about for, like, 15 years almost, until it was finally made in 2015. What's interesting, and I don't know if this is true or if it's still true, if it was ever true, is that also according to IMDb, uh, Charlize has said that George Miller wants to make a spin-off just about Furiosa, mm-hmm. and that Tom Hardy signed on to do three Mad Max movies. Yeah. But I don't know... So, like, as we're recording this this week, Christopher, or maybe last week, Christopher McQuarrie, the director of Rogue Nation and Mission Impossible Fallout, basically said, I don't want to do another Mission Impossible movie, which is sort of understandable because, like, after you make Fallout, where the hell do you go? Because that yeah, movie is so How, how can he make another good. movie, period, to top that? Exactly. <laughs> and so it's like this one. Like, you make Fury Road. Why, if you're George Miller or Tom Hardy or Charlize Theron, would you ever want to do another one? Because, like... Yeah, there's a chance it could be as good or better, but, like, what are the odds of that actually happening? Because, like, everything in this movie is, like, so unbelievable and so done for the first time, and, like, there's so much magic here that I understand the impulse to want to do it again, but can you? No. Yeah, I don't think so, and I don't know if anyone should try. Yeah, no, yeah, no one should pick up the reins to this, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's kind of interesting because they were able to recast Max in sort of like this James Bond way, and, and the yeah. characters' movies don't really have a tight continuity either. He's more of like a folk hero or a legend or something, so they're right. like just retelling the story of Max and getting the details wrong or different from time to time. But I do feel like this has to be George Miller. It it is it's just his blood, sweat, and tears in it. I mean, originally it came you know from him being a um, he was actually a um, uh, an emergency room medic, so like he got the idea for doing Mad Max partially from seeing like road crash victims and everything like that. So I just feel like it's so ingrained in in his sensibilities from there out. And each movie has been getting more and more insane, like. You know, this movie shows you things you've never seen before, but but so I feel did the first one and the second one and even the third one. But but yeah, it just feels like they've plateaued, like much like the Citadel. There's like really nowhere else to go here. We've reached the top. I feel like you could, yeah, I'd just do them in book or comic form. You know, expand the universe in that way. But but as far as the movies go, it's like you, you did it. Like you know, call yep. it a day. <laughs> yeah. To go to what uh, Jordan was saying before, could you? Imagine if this movie came out in 2003, how much hideous cartoony CGI there would have been in this. Yeah, Yeah, especially where George Miller was at the time with all of his talking animal stuff and and like really embracing what what digital graphics can do. I mean, there's a lot of hidden CGI in this movie as well, but it's just like minimal wire stuff, I guess, and and like her arm, Furiosa's arm and stuff. But yeah, it's just crazy how it's the same guy. I just, his sensibilities blow my mind. On Wistful Thinking for our Boatcast series this summer. Boatcast! uh, Boatcast! We we watched Waterworld, which... I've only kind of seen the other Mad Max movies. Um, I told this story on our podcast, too, so I'll tell it kind of short. Um, I used to be an intern at The Onion, and when I was there, they were I was a research intern, so they would just be like, hey, we need something that looks like this. Can you watch a bunch of stuff, make us clips so we have visual references? So they were doing a thing called Future News when I was there. I watched a bunch of dystopian movies, and the Mad Maxes were some of them, and so that's like my only frame of reference for Mad Max. I 
barely remember having watched them. We watched Waterworld, and I said, Kara, this is just Mad Max, but opposite, right? Like, in one, they're in the desert, and now we're in the water, and it's basically the same movie, except this one's bad, and those are good. And she was like, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe. And then she watched them for your podcast, Mike, and she was like, yeah, 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 no, 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 they're the same. Um, <laughs> but so anyway, I went into this having just watched Waterworld, which is terrible, but a lot of the themes and ideas are the same, And it's just fascinating to be like, okay, this is how you poorly execute this, and this is how you beautifully execute this. But I think part of it, I mean a small part of it, is that this movie is rated R, and that movie's rated PG-13. This movie doesn't shy away from, like, gore. This movie's disgusting. But it really, really helps with the world building of it that it's gross a lot of the time. Apparently, the uh, Warner Brothers made a PG-13 version and an R-rated version, and then tested both, and decided to release the R-rated version, which I'm so glad it did, because it comes from that same sort of era where, like, within a year, like, this and Deadpool and probably a couple of the movies came out to, like... right, yeah. Well, I I think Logan was sort of, like, a, a result of Deadpool, but it feels like this and Deadpool, like, from different studios at the same time were just like, hey, we can, you know, still make a billion dollars if we make if we release an R-rated movie if it's good enough and if people want to go see it. Like this movie, I think it, the budget was 150 million and made worldwide almost 400, which not as successful as Deadpool, but still made a lot of money on this movie. It is really gross, but I think you know in terms of the things that I mean, I don't know. I'm not a parent. I don't know, but. It feels like there's not a lot in here that, like, I feel like you could bring a younger kid to this easier than other R-rated movies. Like, there's no language. Um, there's not a ton of blood. I mean, there's some. There's a lot of gross stuff, but not a lot of blood. There's sort of implied nudity and sort of slight nudity, but far less than other movies. Like, it kind of feels not like a hard R, aside from, like, the, the gruesome, grisly, like, Immortan Joe getting his face, like, literally ripped off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like it's sort of, you know, it is R-rated, but it seems like, hey, you could kind of bring, you know, your 14 or 15-year-old to this and not be, like, a bad parent. In fact, be a cool parent. <laughs> or a cool uncle. <laughs> yeah. I watched a, um, a cool YouTube analysis by a channel called Rant and Bollocks. Uh, I have a lovely... Uh, I would guess Irish accent. Apologies to all Irish people listening to this if I'm wrong. And he talks about how this movie does have a lot of the sentimentalities of a children's movie. In fact, he throughout it com- uh, compares it to The Wizard of Oz in a lot of ways, uh, which is pretty fascinating. And I, I won't try to copy what he's saying there. Um, go watch it. But yeah, it does because it's got this whole idea of like working together with people for the greater good and like how really just like the collective. Basically, this movie is about just working together to fulfill a goal and that is how many kids movies like like in homeward bound and like with cars like there's so many kids movies that are about that and it is there's nothing in this that's that bloody gory violent Mm -hmm. it's weird it's uh the beginning is kind of creepy people go kaboom but at the same time like it pulls heartstrings like a lot of those kids movies too like there's there's no movie that is this big, loud, and, like, explosion-y that also makes me ugly cry as hard. I ugly cried a lot, too. I, every like, the time whole second the half, when they go back. The whole mm. second half, I just cried. Something else that kind of adds to, like, the 
kid the kid friendly i guess aspect of this too is like they really pumped up the color like we talked about we mentioned the black and chrome version but the theatrical release is like really saturated like they really especially compared to the last three movies like and i feel like that too just lends it sort of like a um more of a fictional reality i guess like you know you know what i'm saying like almost watching a cartoon to a degree even though it's like an itchy and scratchy cartoon Mm -hmm. it's not a bugs bunny cartoon but but i mean movies can sort of be rated just for themes or like intensity too because it reminds me of one of my favorite all-time sort of like warnings on a on a on a uh, movie rating i saw this for jurassic park 3 i remember in theaters it said warning extreme sci-fi terror you know so like there's things (laughs) like that that exclude being shot or you know, showing blood or nudity and stuff that could also, if there's enough of it in the movie, and there certainly is in this one, this movie is intense from start to finish. So, like, I just feel like the feeling you get from watching this might overwhelm someone of a younger age to a degree. But also, like, for all the other reasons we mentioned, the lack of nudity, blood, some consequence to the violence and stuff that's more sort of cartoonish nature. I would definitely rather take my nephew to this than some of the other R rated movies if I had a list to pick from. Going back to the, what you were saying about the color, about the ramped up saturation, apparently George Miller said that there were two, he had like two rules for the production, that the cinematography would be as colorful as possible to differentiate it from other post-apocalyptic movies that are usually all like drab and gray. Uh, and be like, well, road, we're talking right? about, yeah, we're talking about the road with Carrie. Exactly. So I was just about to say like everything in that movie, except for like the Coca-Cola can, is just like <laughs> the same color. Like it's just all that like disgusting just brown. Ash, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was number one. And number two, uh, he said that the art direction should be as beautiful as possible because he felt that in a world like this, everyone would try to find whatever shred of beauty they could in the world and just, like, cling to it. And so, like, I love, I mean, you know, I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast, but on other podcasts, to be sure, my mega crush, Riley Kia, like, I love that her hair is so, like, vividly red, that, like, in this, like, crazy world, whether that's her natural hair color in this world or not, but, like, she's not going to be taken down by this world. Like, she's going to, like, stand out from the crowd and just, like, all these, like, crazy, just hyper-saturated, like, little bursts of life are just so great to see. They just pop against the otherwise like dirty, dusty landscape that also looks gorgeous. There's all these little details of it that like I feel like that's not just like a rule that he used for production. Like that's a rule that this every character in this movie follows. Like not all of it is pretty because they do live in the desert. It's mostly just brown. But like the details of like how there's an arm on the outside of her rig. And if you look at the details of the cars that everybody else is driving, like there's personality to them where it's not just this like drab world. Like even the war boys like give personality to what's his name Nux. Mm-hmm. He's Nux, got yeah. the he's got his little yeah. tumors that have smiley faces. Barry on and them. Larry, his mates. Barry and Larry. Barry and Larry, right, 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 right. His mates. Just like the little details like that really, really bring life to a genre that doesn't always have that. Yeah, and also I think of like the wheels, right? Like their steering yeah. wheels, like yeah. all personalized. And and something that runs through all the movies, Max in his car, like that, you know, like every time in, the, in his movies, like he's, or at least after the second one, he's trying to get his car back. And it's just like, you know, it's his one possession. Like they each, that's kind of interesting. I never really considered that before either though, but I, I like that a lot. And yeah, all the war boys look alike too, for the most part. Yeah, if you look a little closer, like Nux has this uh, engine sort of tattooed on his chest, but it's like, you know, more of like a brand, I guess. And then his Lancer has sort of like this really 
distorted Joker scarring going on with his smile and stuff. So it is pretty cool. They try to personalize everything. I don't think it's necessarily her choice, but when you talk about brands, you talk about tattoos. Like, I love that we are introduced to Furiosa by, like, the, the, the brand on the back of her neck. Like, that just sort of defines who she is and, like, what she is. I don't know that that's necessarily her choice. Like, that might just be a mark of her role. I don't know exactly, you know, the, the, the mythology of the Mad Max universe, but, like, it's just such a cool introduction that, like, this is what makes her her in a way, you know? Yeah, and even, I think, to a, a bigger degree, like, her arm, right? Like, the idea that she was able, she's like, I'm going to cobble together this out of whatever is around. I mean, I don't know. I think, like, she could have either gone around with one arm or decided, like, I'm going to build, like, this steampunk arm and, like, you know, keep going and be, you know, someone with two arms now, like, no matter how it has to happen and stuff. Because something about, like, the branding that's interesting is, like, that's what freaks Max out the most. Like, he's getting his back tattooed with all of, like, his details about him, his blood type, where he's from. He's a road warrior. He was an ex-cop and all this local, you know, universal donor. And then they come at him with that with that Skullfire brand, that, like, Ghost Rider head, and he, like, freaks the fuck out and, like, won't let that happen. So it's almost like it represents, a like, a loss of your identity. Like, he doesn't want that taken away. He doesn't want to be conformed by Immortan Joe, like, the rest of his, like, crew and everything. And so I feel like her arm is almost, like, in defiance of that brand in a way, saying, like, this is the piece of me that, that I created that, you know, belongs to me. Like, my arm was taken away, but I brought it back myself or something. One of my favorite parts is at the beginning when they're trying to, maybe it's, I can't remember if it's before or after they brand him, but he's trying to get away and he's still handcuffed. He comes to that ledge and looks down and is like, oh shit. And then he jumps onto that hook and swings himself around. And for like a brief second, you're like, oh, he might get away. He doesn't. But I love, love, love that jump and that catch. That whole, like, sequence is, like, breathless because he's just getting chased through this thing, this place that he's never been, and you've never been there as the viewer, and, like, you just don't know what he's going to do, and, like, he just... There's, like, that little even moment of tension before he jumps through. He has to, like, basically run toward the people chasing him so that he can just then run away and get a little bit more momentum. It's just, like, that whole thing is just... It's just amazing, and then you realize, I guess as soon as he gets all the way out there, that, like, oh, no, momentum's going to bring you back. I mean, he takes one or two out with him, but still, at the same time, there is that glimmer. You're right, Jordan, which is like, oh, he might get away, but in this movie, like, I don't think you can ever really get away from anything. Like, you know, he talks about when they get all the way out to the east where there is nothing, you know, and they're trying to figure out if they should keep going or go back. He's like, I guarantee you, you can go for 160 days or whatever that way and there's nothing. Like, he knows there's nothing out there. The prospect of nothing, I guess, is better than being captured by, you know, Immortan Joe and Nux and all those guys. Yeah, and that that sort of escape attempt is so claustrophobic in the tunnels and everything, and he's running through, like, all the different sort of compartments there, and then when he when he opens that door, it's just such a breath of fresh air, and it just opens up that whole world, and you see the citadel, and you see the giant brand, like, carved into the mountain and shit, and you're like, oh my god, like, where the fuck did they bring him? Like, it's almost like a nightmare to me, <laughs> to be honest, like, the imagery, just, like, it's coming fast and, and intense and stuff, and, like, I don't know, like, it's... It's scary, but I'm not afraid, but it's very unnerving for sure. And it's it's a sequence that leads very seamlessly into the introduction and contains part of the introduction to the War Boys and Immortan Joe's Kingdom and really just the setup to the film and the inciting incident. And it, it does that. That's part of one of the my favorite things that this movie does is it never stops to explain anything in this weird apocalypse bondage 
WWF universe, a lesser movie, but maybe like every movie, <laughs> which is a lesser movie because every movie is a lesser movie than this, would stop and have Furiosa be like, ah, yes, a, a Morton Joe came into into my village and and he took my arm and and his brides and that's how he got his mask and just stop the movie dead in its tracks to explain shit that no one needs to have explained to them and just be like better if you didn't. Mad Max never takes the opportunity to slow the pace down. It can't. It can't afford it. It's it's high octane all the way through. And I really appreciate that it doesn't feel the need to treat its audience like a bunch of morons. No, and it makes me so accepting of a, a bunch of things that don't make any sense to me. But I'm just like, yeah, no, no, no. This is the world. Great. Cool. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. And they keep it so simple that it's just easy. Like, they use so many words that I don't understand. I don't care. Oh, yeah. I'm just like, yeah, cool. Doof is like the perfect example, I feel, of all of it. It's like, <laughs> what the fuck is that? I have no idea, but okay. Like, I buy it. I believe it. It belongs here. <laughs> and I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. It's, but if, it's there is, if there is any character I would read a Star Wars Extended Universe-esque novel about, it is Doof Warrior. <laughs> I mean, there's also like those creatures, like the, I don't know what they're called, but just the things like walking on the stilts in the desert. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know what those are. The movie's not going to tell you, but like, yeah, cool. Like, I'm down. Like, that's, yeah. sure, why not? And and when it actually does, I feel like the one time it actually does something, it earns it so well because, like, the one time it does it is when he tells Furioso his name at the very end when she's about to die, you know? Like, it's so perfect when he says, my name is Max, it's great, you know? Because she even asks, like, once or twice, what's your name? I'll call you fool, like, this and that. And then, like, yeah, he doesn't have to be like, my name is Max Rokotansky, I had a wife and a daughter, you know, I fought my way through Thunderdome, like, all this stuff, like, I saved the kids from the crack in the earth, like, no, like, it doesn't matter, and I love that it doesn't matter either, but that moment is one of my favorite. that's when I start to swell up at the end there, when he says, when he says his name at the end. Because, like, his first and his last line in the movie, the first in the voiceover and the last one there, it's just him, you know, telling someone, either it's us or Charlize, Furiosa, what his name is, and, like, this is, like, his name is on the title, but as very many, you know, fragile male ego people cried out when this movie came out like this is not a Max movie this is a Furiosa movie this is a wives movie this is a movie where gender politics and gender dynamics matter and what's also super cool behind the scenes what I didn't realize is that George Miller's wife edited this and he said that he wanted her to edit this so that a man wouldn't because if a man edited this it would look like every other action movie of all time, so he didn't. We want to avoid that. But the craziest thing is they shot 470 hours of footage that took her three months to watch, and so oh. like the 470 of those hours became these two. And holy shit, did she pick the right two hours? We don't even know. We we've not seen the rest. Who knows? There could be more. It could be better. <laughs> yeah, they could do like a like the Anchorman extra cut of the all the stuff that was deleted they made it to like an extra movie on the blu-ray or something like that but that's awesome that reminds me of how like marshall lucas i think uh george lucas's wife uh edited the original star wars a new hope and like apparently saved that from being total shit like apparently like he did a cut (laughs) and the studio was like you know you're out of your effing mind and uh she went through and salvaged it basically so that's really awesome he also brought in um eve ensler as a consultant on it Eve Ensler, who wrote The Vagina. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Charlize, the reason that we're here today to talk about this movie in general. I still think, Mike, that, like, Young Adult is a better showcase of who she is just because she's in, like, every frame of that movie, basically. 
but this sort of in a way kind of feels like just like John Wick like we all I mean I think we sort of said it about young adult just in a different way like this feels like what her career has been building to like going even all the way back to Mighty Joe Young when we were talking about like they're yeah. driving through downtown LA or wherever yes. they are and she's like hanging on the side of that truck like there's these glimpses of Charlize the action star we have not yet picked out what the archetypal roles if that even is a category we're going to do for the awards but i feel like there's a few different very dynamic different charlies and i don't even know if archetypal role is the best way to do it it sort of feels like the type of actor she is like because there's charlie's the action star there's charlie's the dramatic performer there's charlie's like the comedian and i feel like cage did a lot of different things but i feel like in terms of like what she does like she's really dynamic and like a handful of different things and you know this in a way like i was saying feels like the culmination of like this is action charlie's we're gonna see it again in a few movies with atomic blonde which is also awesome but like this feels like oh yeah, like we can sort of see this coming through the 38 episodes that we did to get to this point. Yeah, it does kind of feel like a culmination of everything because like, you know, she's great in everything pretty much that she's in. Like even if what she's in isn't always the best thing to watch, but she usually is really good because she's a really good actress. What is kind of interesting about this performance is it's mostly like a performance of extremes where she's like extremely angry or extremely mad, like shooting people driving, like... But there are moments in here, subtle looks and things to Max, or that moment in the desert where she breaks down and stuff, where she has to sort of, like, turn on a dime, or, like, switch real quick, and go from, like, angry to despair in, like, you know, a cut or something like that of, of, of two shots and stuff, and she can pull it off, like, she, I really feel like, yeah, young adult, you know, she had more range, I guess, to display as far as, like, you know, gradually, like, showing you what she can do as far as, like, dramatic performances and stuff. But here, like, she's holding up all the action and stuff, and she's pulling out, like, the dramatic things when it's called for. And it's, I think, hardest of all is all that stuff being believable in an action movie, you know? Like, as much as I love, love, love Face Off and other John Woo films, from time to time, they get a bit too melodramatic. I think he's just gets to a little too soap opery sometimes when he gets to the the love story or the dramatic side of it and other times in other action movies that stuff can be laughable or fall flat as far as her performance here like i just totally buy everything that's going on it just feels like she is this person everything is just feels genuine and is reigning true so and i think what helps me especially with my hair blindness is that because she shaved <laughs> her head it does feel like a different kind of person i mean we we talked about when we did a million ways to die in the west a couple episodes ago that like because of this movie she shaved her head and she had to wear a wig for that the wig she wore just was Charlize you know what I mean like it felt mm-hmm. like oh that's just her hair like that's not a wig that's just her hair but here it's like oh no this is like a dynamically drastic different person and it's you know great she and Tom Hardy have I feel like I'm not an actor but what I assume is a very 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 hard job in this movie because there's almost no dialogue it's mostly just face acting she especially i feel like is able to bring a kind of like depth to this character without saying a lot of words the only other time i in recent memory i can really think of a performance that did that so well was sally hawkins in um shape of water oh and, yeah and in in both uh for both charlie's and and sally hawkins um they they were the most grounded down-to-earth performances in universes full of weird cartoony shit and you need you need someone to tether you to the ground or else 
characters like Doof Warrior and Immortan Joe and, and Nux are gonna just take you in, into the fucking stratosphere. And so she really does carry a lot of this movie on her shoulders along with Tom Hardy who has like, what, like 12 lines or something insane like that. And he's even wearing a muzzle for like... His face is covered too. for 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, shot, we, we talked about, you know, Batman and Cinemakers before, but he's kind of wearing, like, the Bane muzzle oh, there, yeah, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? So right. That's another thing quickly I wanted to, to address is that I really started kind of paying attention to this during Cinemakers when we were doing the Insomnia episode because they were shooting in the land of the Midnight Sun up there and stuff. But holy shit to these actors, do I give them every award there is for shooting out here in the desert, like, on these speeding cars, in these conditions. I mean... There's a lot of shots and, you know, a lot of setups, and I'm sure there were a lot of terrible, terrible, uncomfortable hours out there. So just thinking about that, too, is just a marvel for my mind to, to sort of wrap itself around. I think I read that they shot a lot of this in, like, Namibia, like, just in the Western African deserts. And from what I was reading, like, a lot of the cast members became, like, really close because, like, there's nothing out there. A lot of them became close. Apparently... Tom Hardy was a real pain in the ass to work with on this movie because I think he just had no idea what this was going to become. Like, Charlize, apparently, they both said, after, like, while making this movie and after the fact, like, we didn't know what this was going to be. And George Miller was just doing, like, these crazy things, like, having them do, like, these... You couldn't tell what it was going to become. And then they saw the movie, they are like, holy shit, like, he was right. But apparently Tom Hardy was, like, a real asshole, went so far as to, like, apologize, at least to George Miller, I don't know about to Charlize, but, like, apologize to George Miller after the fact, like oh, like, I should have trusted you all along. But I can't imagine... That probably was partly because, like, you're living in the middle of nowhere Africa for weeks or months or whatever, and just you don't know what you're doing. You don't know the extent to which you're making it. Like, you might have seen the storyboards, you might have read the script, but, like, you don't know what this is going to look like until Margaret Sixel does her magic to this. Like, I, I can't imagine not knowing, like, the, the scale and the scope to what this is going to be. I feel like him being angry kind of fits his character anyway. Yeah. That's, that's kind of who he is in the movie, too. You know, he... There's only a couple times where he gives, even with Furiosa, who he kind of builds this not trust, not quite trusting relationship with, but yeah, kind of. Fun fact, Tom Hardy and Charlize's stunt doubles met and fell in love on this movie, and they're married. Oh, yeah, and uh, Riley Keough met her husband, who's another stunt double on this movie, and they met on the set here and got married, too. So, like, love is in the air when you're in the middle of nowhere Africa. (laughs) (laughs) The main uh, girl out of, like, the... The escapees, isn't she Jason Statham's wife in real life? I don't think they've been on the set or anything, but I I saw that looking around. And Mike, we have now covered both of her major acting roles, both in this and in Transformers Three for all his movies. Like, (laughs) you know, we have we have completed, I think, as far as I can tell, uh, the Rosie Huntington Whiteley filmography in terms of podcasts. (laughs) That's awesome. We have a a hidden podcast hidden within our (laughs) podcast. It just took you know three years apart or whatever to to finish it, or two years apart. So yeah, the five wives are. Abby Lee from Neon Demon. We got Riley Keough from Magic Mike. I'm just talking about like what podcast, and also American Honey, which I guess we didn't do, but we will for some podcasts at some point. Eventually, we'll get back to that for Shia, I feel, at some day. One and day. if not that, for sure, a pit stop on Too Fast, You Forever. We've got Zoe Kravitz, uh, who does not look like, again, hair blindness does not look like her at all to me, but it is what it is. Uh, we have Rosie Hunter Whiteley, and then we have Courtney Eason, who I just don't know. Like, it feels like there's these four that, like, they're not all necessarily famous now. Like, Abby Lee's not a huge actress, and, like, you know, Rosie Huntington Whiteley's been in two movies, and Riley Keough's not really that well-known, but, like, to have a fifth person who's just, like, I don't know who you are just sort of feels mm-hmm. strange, but, like, collectively as a unit, like, they just work 
So, like, it feels like there is, like, this bond, there is this love there that propels them forward, that, like, as they're facing desperation in the desert, like, they have each other, they're not going to leave each other behind, and when Rosie dies, when she gets, you know, falls off and gets run over, like, you feel it. They're a very interesting group. Uh, to me, like, are they the only ones that represent diversity, you know, in this movie? Because, like, <laughs> they, they are sort of, like, you know, a cross-section of, you know, I feel like the different races and cultures and stuff that have since fallen to the wayside in society and stuff but that's what it feels like to me because the rest of this movie is just like kind of just like so white and in Morton Joe is just like this old white dude who sits on top of his white tower and everything but so like that was just at this time he's got an army of white boys yeah, yeah yeah you know so like that this time was I'm trying to figure out like here on the air I mean it's just these mm-hmm. thoughts and stuff that are coming to me now there's also like an entire population that I assume these women were yeah. pulled from mm. that you don't really get to see except you know they're kind of like covered in rags you can't see who they are but why are all the war boys white it's like there's two i had actually two thoughts about that the first one is the mad max films are just built on like symbols and symbology really like a lot of the same sort of images permeate throughout the movies and in beyond thunderdome there was a character called screw loose who looks exactly like one of the war boys he's all white uh with black eyes and he actually has like a short black mohawk he doesn't have like a painted forehead but he looks just like them so on one hand i just think miller really loves that look and wanted to have that represented here on a major scale um and then the other idea i had was just that immortan joe want he needs everyone they're all his sons so they all have to look like him so they all have to be white with like sunken eyes and stuff and, and they're not allowed to have hair because he's like the main lion of the pride and everything i mean there are i guess splashes of diversity if you want to call that like in among his people like there is the Doof Warrior, who we've mentioned a couple times, whose guitar, I think, weighed like 130 pounds or something, the actual guitar itself. The other, like, there's a couple drivers that look different. There is the the little person who is in that, like, wheelchair propped up thing, oh, whatever. Like, yeah. there are, like, these... It almost feels like if you look different, like, you get prominence in your role. Like, I don't know... Hmm. Like, I, I agree with Jordan that, like, the, the, the wives probably came from the population, like, oh, she's beautiful, let's take her. But then I also wonder if, like, wives become mothers? You know, like the, right. the, the milk the factories, milkers. if you will, mm. like, once they're past childbirthing age, or if those are different people. Like, I'm, I'm sort of glad that we don't get real explanations because it sort of lets you either, if you want to think about it, you can think about it, or if you don't really care, you can just sort of, like, let it go and yeah. just sort of be engrossed in the action or whatever. But it's, it's important that the war boys are just this kind of homogeneous, just mix of suicide warriors essentially um since all of Morton joe and his his kingdom really does i i guess i guess this apocalypse instead of being the polar ice caps melting in water world or something like that or i know it says it's like a nuclear fallout world but really this is this world is death by capitalism like we have a Morton joe representing the death grip of the capitalists on the people commodifying water and and turning fucking like milk into and women into a commodity lording that over the populace and the entire movie is about the the people taking that back from kind of the the bourgeois like it is important that that it has like a quote-unquote working class of the the war boys who are just willing to either break out against it in rare cases like nux or throw themselves into the machine for the you know their corporate overlord um, so for them to be homogenous, I think, is is symbolically and textually kind of relevant outside of just like, you know, they're all white. Yeah, I think even more so today, too, when you look at our 
current political climate and who the president is and then the people that just follow him blindly off of cliffs you know daily you know off of steeper and oh steeper God. cliffs and yeah. it's just like them with that they've sort of made him and morton joe into like this religious figure where you know they sacrifice themselves and you know they talk about going to valhalla and all this stuff and they they spray their mouths chrome to sort of imitate immortan joe's chrome grill on his face and everything like at the very end there and so like yeah it's you know the politics in these movies are really on their on its sleeve it's not hiding anything there because they have to be because it's first and foremost like a car chase crash bang you know crazy movie so like to be able to smuggle any kind of message in is really great and for it to sort of hit well is even better the politics of like thunderdome are very interesting too because you know you have tina turner running shit you know this uh strong black woman there i didn't know that yeah and then underground you have a very interesting mix with master blaster where you have like a little person and someone who's learning disabled running stuff underground it's not unlike rictus and his brother in this movie it's sort of got like a different version of Master Blaster in this, but they're not connected. They're sort of separate in this movie. But again, in that movie too, though, it's all very kind of blatant or obvious. And and it's not that it's hidden, but it's just more about the action, I feel. But again, it's cool that it's there too. Just just look at a Morton Joe's speech when he before he dumps the water. It's like such it's such a like a, a propaganda political kind of stump speech. What's sort of interesting to me, and I think, you know, we've been mentioning it a couple times, so, like, as we were going through, as we are going through Cinemakers of Christopher Nolan, like, it feels like this movie sort of fits in, like, not that Christopher Nolan could have or would have made this movie, but in a way it kind of feels like it fits into his filmography in that, like, if you want to just absorb this as an action movie, you can, but if you want to look deeper and look for metaphors and look for symbology and stuff, like, you can also do that, too. And I think this does it better, or, you know, there's less drawbacks than in a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. Even There's less old. clutter, right? Like, yes. Yeah, that's it. He's only trying to tackle sure. one or two things as opposed to like six or seven. Yeah. Which, I mean, this is sort of, I guess, in a way then, like the ultimate Christopher Nolan movie. Like, it's an action movie that people are going to love, but it's also a movie that has themes and has points that it wants to make. And when action movies are more than just action movies and also happen to be like really kick-ass action movies, like, that just is the best. There's also something that's really rhythmic about the driving. Like, if you told me I would like watching a car chase for two hours, I'd be like, no, I don't know. You need to, like, break it up. (laughs) It can be a lot. And they do such a good job of it having a pace, even though it's, like, constantly moving the whole time. Like, it's mesmerizing. I want to watch it move the whole time. I think what was kind of smart is making the whole movie the car stuff. Because it's in the other films, but it's usually held to the end for like the climax at least in road warrior and thunderdome like this is this mirrors the first mad max i think more than the other two as far as like car action and sheer like insanity as as we're recording this i'm rewatching. i want to just make special note of like one of the coolest thumbs up in cinema history when rosie and whatley <laughs> falls out of the truck and she catches on and max just turns around and looks out the window and just gives her the thumbs up and then i mean you know, she she falls <laughs> and dies there yeah. i'm just thinking of like the, the the famous thumbs up of movies like from terminator 2 or like the guest another movie with another great <laughs> thumbs up like i mean this has got to be on the mount rushmore thumbs up i think hell yeah what's the thumbs For up sure. in the guest uh, the thumbs up in the guest is at the end right where yeah, the, the boy very, stabs very, him very and he end. says i'm proud of you <laughs> good job yeah oh my gosh i don't remember that that's the only movie i've ever watched twice in one day it's pretty perfect um especially because that movie is basically halloween mashed up with the terminator and just to sort of in a way take from the terminator is, is great but yeah. Can I ask you guys a question? There's so many of them in this movie. 
um, that I, I feel like even if you don't realize you have one, like everyone has one. What is your favorite thing from the beginning of the movie that is paid off at the end of the movie? Because this is like a screenwriter entire 101 class on just like setup and payoff in, in the most beautiful ways possible. Hmm. I think watching it the first time I knew they were drawing so much attention to him being like a blood bag, which is a ama- yeah. which is such a crazy concept. Like the idea that he's just like strap my blood bag to the car and take him with us. Like, <laughs> So I think the idea that that came back, that he has to give a blood transfusion at the end to Furiosa. Um, that was just, again, yeah. Chris, to sort of take from you, chef kiss, Mwah, right in the air for me, yeah. you know, watching this movie. Yeah. Again, that whole sequence, like I was already sort of tearing up and stuff, but when, but that gave it an extra push because of like the screenwriting. I was like, oh, they know what they're doing so well. <laughs> yeah. And that's the action heroes, like, that's the thing he does in this movie. He doesn't, like, leap off of Nakatomi Plaza, run away from a boulder. Mad Max's big, like, moment of badassness is to give Furiosa his blood, and it's so good. I think one of my favorite things is not necessarily, like, a, a setup and payoff, but I just love the symbology of... There's so many times in this movie where, like, somebody is either literally or metaphorically chained to someone or something else. I think that that mm-hmm. constant running motif throughout the movie is really interesting, that, like, whether they're physically like whether max is chained to nux he has to carry him across the desert or you know like through a door or like whatever or like you know he gets his hand pinned to the steering wheel all sorts of different stuff like that like there's just like these like beautiful like through lines of dependence and link and bonds that just you know whether you actually tied someone or not that it just visually throughout the movie i think it's just it's wonderful that's really cool joey because i didn't think of how symbolic that ends up being because they almost form like this unbreakable chain like bond by the end when they're on their way back and they're almost like this pseudo family fast and forever <laughs> and it's a tethered chain that uh spells the end for old Morton joe as well that's right that's right he gets faced yeah i'm gonna say unless unless jordan has one do you Kind of. I mean, I really, really like this message about women that gets set up pretty instantly. Once we realize that Furiosa has the wives and they're like, no, fuck you. We're not objects. You can't keep us. And then that they go collect these other women and then they all go back together to Mm. wreak havoc and, you know, win eventually. That's really, Mm -hmm. really powerful. I am. Yeah, I mentioned ugly crying before and I, I tweeted out uh, maybe three or four months ago when I was when I was watching this with someone who had never seen it before that um, I had to like steal myself at certain points in the movie uh, and then like at the this you know the big moment I actually had to leave the room because I knew what was going yep. to happen if I had stuck around the dichotomy in the first time that Nux says witness me and the last oh. time is fucking beautiful yeah that was also one of my ugly cries yeah Nick Holt is kind of disappears in this role like i'm not really privy to a lot of his i remember him as a child star more and then i basically consider him to be beast in x-men but i mean we just watched him in another charlie's movie and he's totally forgettable in that and well everything is totally forgettable in that movie (laughs) dark places movie should be buried in a dark place every copy but here yeah he just embodies nux and i man like when you just know he's dying from the first frame you see him they're just talking about how he's on his last limb and stuff or he's like a to just keel over the uh, sympathy that is built up toward him from me throughout this movie is incredible mm-hmm. moments with him that get me um when when him and max exchange the boot back and forth the first time like when he like completely humiliates himself in front of his god uh and then but like um the the redhead wives just like her immediate empathy and like nurturing of him 
and then him immediately just like taking the chain and like finding like a family and just so many moments with Nux. Like I can't watch the movie anymore knowing what happens and not get extremely emotional watching him and his performance throughout Mad Max. It's I think he's like I know this is Watch the Throne, but I feel like Nick Holt is like the secret MVP of this movie. I forgot somehow, like, how tender his moments are with Riley Kia with Capable. Like, you know, they form this bond, like, out of nowhere. Like, she comes from a place where she can't really trust any men, and just in the matter of, like, bonding through circumstance, like, they seem to genuinely have something in this movie. Like, the the characters, the actors, whatever, but, like, it's not, like, the emotional core of this movie, but, like, it's an emotional core of this movie. Like, they are so good together, and, like, this embodiment of, like, this you know, these mismatched duo or whatever. And he has the biggest transformation in, you know, one day. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it and read into that and think about all the other broken war boys who with a little empathy could be completely different people, it's just the saddest. Yeah, and it's kind of crazy. Like at the end, he's the one who says it sounds like hope when Max kind of reveals his plan, you know? And it just makes me think like, yeah, like when they get back there and Furiosa's in charge and they're in charge, like, there is hope for those boys, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like they can be reformed now. Um, they'll be, like, in definitely in better hands, but, like, maybe even the best of hands. And especially Riley Keough, having already sort of converted one, knows yeah. how to sort of talk to the rest, perhaps. And what's kind of cool is that, like, the younger generation of those boys, like, they're the ones who decide to let them up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they're all, like, the, the crowd is chanting, let them up, let them up at the end. And they're the ones who actually jump down to that lower platform and, like, pull the lever to lower that platform to let the car go on. Like, they're not tainted or corrupted beyond repair in this world yet. Like, they may look the part, but they are not acting the part. They are here for... They're the bright future of tomorrow. They're the ones not ruined by Immortan Joe. They're the ones who are, you know, there for the people, which is, you know, it's cool to see. And as they're writing that lift up, that last look between Furiosa and Max is just breathtaking. It's so perfectly timed in its editing, and both of them play it in such an understated, but understandable way. I love it. I could watch the last, like, minute of that movie over and over again. I love how they shot that where like we by the end of that shot we're like looking straight up at her which mm-hmm. makes her look like such a powerful badass yes. it's so cool and what i love about that shot i don't know i actually don't know if we've talked about this on podcast before but you know one critic one reviewer that i know that chris and i both love uh david Ehrlich, who at every year at the end of the year puts together his video of the top 25 films of his from that year and this made the list in 2015 and that's one of the shots like I've seen those videos like those short videos probably dozens if not a hundred times so like I know what shots he uses from this movie and like seeing that shot or seeing you know Max with the shotgun like saying no no you over there like these just like iconic moments from this film all set to Cindy Lauper's girls just want to have fun like I it just <laughs> my brain is such a weird mishmash like jumbled up thing but like like, that shot is so iconic in multiple ways, and I just love it. I mean, I love that, you know, like Jordan said, like, it gives her the power. She's the one who's ascending to the throne, and she's the one in charge that we're looking at her, and she's looking down at us, and it's her world now. And that's why this movie is not as good in 2003 with uh, Mel Gibson, because that has to be Mel Gibson's movie. This can't be Mad Max's movie. You know, it, it is literally and, phys- and, and metaphorically and symbolically all the, th- all the different things, like a passing of the torch from men to women. Like, it is a Morton Joe to Furiosa. It is Max to Furiosa. It is men in the star of the, the movie to women in the star of the movie. And, like, what I think is, like, really unique and 
cool is that aside from Max and Nux, like literally every guy in this movie is evil, and like they don't like they don't try to like make you sympathize with any of them. Like the women are all for the for almost entirely like good and pure. And then aside from these two guys who sort of learn from them, they're all just terrible, terrible men. So, I mean, there, there's no subtlety here about, like, what this movie is saying, and to have it end that way is awesome. And, you know, I think it's Riley Keeley who says, who destroyed the world? Like, we don't need an answer. Like, we know. We get it from the movie. So I actually kind of forgot that Furiosa wasn't... Is She's not in this movie for the first, like, 15 minutes, maybe? Like, it is. it does open with Max, which I totally forgot. I hadn't seen this in a while. So then you get to her, and it really feels like she's the main character, and he's kind of on the periphery. But I really, really like the last big fight scene. They are separated and fighting at the same time, and it pretty equally cuts back and forth between the two of them, which felt like a really appropriate way to end it and to give both of the those characters what they deserve. Yeah, I, I almost feel like, to a degree, even though his name is on the title... These movies aren't entirely about Max himself. Like, yes, they're about his adventures and his journeys, but it's mostly Max wanders into town and, like, helps a bunch of people who are being terrorized. Or Max wanders into town, you know, to get his camels back and gets wrapped up in Thunderdome. Or, like, you know, Max gets taken into the Citadel and wrapped up in Furiosa's journey and stuff. I think that's part of why I love this series so well, because you can't really do that with, like, Batman, right? Like, you can't have a Batman movie that's primarily about... Well, I guess they tried with Cat, about Catwoman, and it turned out pretty good, to be quite honest, that that last Dark Knight Rises, he's barely in it. But um, I think what I'm trying to get at is, like, he isn't necessarily always the main character in his own series, and that's cool. Like, that's definitely weird and unusual, but it works because of the idea, at least, that they're not entirely connected to one another. They are more of just like these folk tales or whatever. We're just going to use elements and symbols and have them reoccur and evolve the uh, like the meanings behind them and stuff until we get to this this like amazing crescendo where like the first movie is could be you know a bunch of guys in leather running or could be just seen as a bunch of guys in leather driving really fast down a highway and now we are a bunch of women driving a truck through the desert to salvation and stuff so like it's just a really interesting arc overall throughout like the course of the franchise he's a cowboy with a car yeah yeah he's a car boy (laughs) Ooh, car boy I have a bunch of quotes written down, but is there anything else major about this movie, either, you know, the events of the movie or the metaphors or the symbology that we want to make sure that we talk about before we do some odds and ends and then get on to other stuff? Like, I feel like we could talk about it more, but I don't know. I feel like we've done a pretty good job, a pretty thorough job in this last hour. Is there anything else major that we're missing? The only other thing I feel like mentioning is that George Miller has, like, a really awesome sort of, like, obsession with bungee chords. Um, I don't know if bungee jumping originated down under or where, but in Thunderdome, you're strapped to bungee cords. And in this one, you know, Doof, my man, mm-hmm. the Doof warrior, is strapped to bungee cords. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. That is just, to me, like, so unusual and strange. And again, something I never would think would connect to this universe. And yet, maybe just because of its inherent danger, it seems cool and therefore, like, fits well into this world. But um, just among among things that have shown up previously in other Mad Max movies like that that makes me laugh (laughs) the most well he seems to just have like an eye for movement I can't reference the other Mm. ones because I have barely seen them but like the same way like you know Dufourier is on the bungee and like the same way like the 
poles are swinging back and forth. It wasn't good enough to just have like poles on top of a car or even just have like a big truck driving. But he was like, no, 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 like it adds a layer of movement to it that's so cool. One other thing that I think is really important because this movie is so quickly cut when it's in, especially when it's in the action scenes and there is so much movement. Apparently George Miller told the cinematographer to keep everything, to keep all the action in the center of the frame. That uh, apparently the cinematographer, the guy named John Seal said, George Miller basically said, keep the crosshairs on her nose. That like there's so much going on, there's so many moving parts literally and figuratively in this movie that they're like, we know there's a shitload going on we're going to keep the camera focused right on what you need. And it probably took the guy a while to sort of get used to that kind of shooting because that's not really what you do. But I think it works because there is so much crazy stuff going on. Your eyes can look around, but as long as you sort of sort of focus on the middle of the screen, you're getting the, the core of what, you know, what it's all about. That definitely worked because I have that thing where like if a movie is cut too fast, which happens in a lot of movies now where there's action, it's cut so fast that I can't see it. And that only happened to me like, once or twice in this where I got disoriented. Yeah, thank goodness this guy shot a movie like it was supposed to be shot. Not like just because they wanted to look cool or something handheld and quick or whatever but like you could just really feel the craft 100% all around in this movie and every just about every shot is gorgeous and perfect and yeah like the action holds long enough so that you can tell what's actually going on before it cuts you know like every cut is on purpose and not just to cut or because to advance action or whatever like this is highly choreographed and probably very storyboarded and everything here so i'm just so relieved (laughs) the guy listened to george miller and that george miller knew you know how to shoot a movie like this because i don't think any i don't think everybody would have wanted to shoot it like this and they would have been wrong two other little things that i have one little thing one bigger thing one apparently charlize was wearing like this like big green cast so they could like digitally remove her arm from the movie and then you know put in her her prosthetic arm in this movie but she apparently elbowed tom hardy in the nose and broke his nose at one point so there we go that's something but this all this movie also won i believe six oscars best achievement in film editing costume design makeup and hair sound mixing sound editing production design it was nominated for best picture and was the only film nominated for best picture that year that got zero acting nominations so i guess it's kind of rare it was just like you know the acting is good but it's not i guess noteworthy enough to nominate but everything else about this movie is so phenomenal that like we got to make sure that we recognize this movie for what it is. I think that's even like more of a compliment. The idea that like no one is doing anything better than anyone. Everyone's at the top of their game or something. Or like everybody's working exactly how they should here. Yeah, it would be unfair to sort of single anyone out, I feel. And the only other little bit of trivia that I have is that the body count in this movie is 110. 34 people killed by Max and 32 killed by Furiosa. So that's a lot of dead bodies in this movie. One, probably one of the highest... I would imagine, in a Charlize movie so far, probably, right? If not the highest. Oh, in a Charlize movie? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can't imagine it getting... Well, we didn't see how many people died in the story of The Road, but I'm sure... Oh, were... well, yeah, I mean, billions <laughs> of people. <laughs> but, yes, as far as, like, on-screen, for sure. Anybody else have any other last thoughts before we get on to the games and other segments of the show? Yeah, real quick, just because... I did this with the Nolan stuff, and I tried to do this on episodes of Cage Club Universe things that are irredeemable trash. Um, I try to say one good thing about the trash, and I'll say my one one negative that I still feel every time I watch this movie, uh, though I understand it, I hate the day-for-night stuff. Um, I think it looks garish. 
Um, but I understand that shooting in the middle of the desert at night would have like added like $5 million onto the cost of this film. I just think it looks really, really ugly. That is my one, my, my one negative that I have about this movie. Back to the love fest. Oh, do you have like the, the solo Star Wars opening sequence sort of like monochromatic blue complaint thing? I could see, I definitely can see that. It gets a little over the toppy with that. Ultimately, I, I, I didn't, it didn't bother me so much. I, I did think that the bullet man sequence is a little cut short, though. Like that just sort of feels a little sort of like in and out as opposed to everything else being very sort of filled out. But I hear you there. I can buy that. My one complaint sort of similarly is like this movie was shot partially or whatever in 3D and some of the 3D effects look yeah. kind of cheesy. Like when at the yep. end, like the steering wheel is coming toward the screen. I'm like, OK, OK. But that's like, you know, a couple seconds and otherwise a nearly perfect two-hour movie. I have one complaint. I don't like the flashbacks. I don't like Max's flashbacks. They make me feel like there's something I'm maybe supposed to understand from the other movies that I don't. And I think this movie is pretty the same without them. Yeah. Yeah, they are a little perplexing. I tried to dig a little more into that. And there is a prequel comic book that I didn't have time to read or anything. But I feel like they're from an adventure, you know, that we're not privy to or anything. They're, they're not linked directly to any of the previous movies. Only the idea that Max has helped people in the past and he has both failed and succeeded depending on the circumstances here. So I just got a sense that it was uh, his haunted past. But I, I do hear you. It does. It is sort of, I don't want to say it's like out of place or anything, but it is a little jarring because they're not consistent. They're just in the very beginning and then they come back at the very end there. So I almost just like completely forget about them. And then they come back and I'm like, oh yeah, like they didn't really need to come back. But but I hear you there. Mike, do you have any other thoughts about Fury Road before we uh, move on? No, I'm just, you know, I'm so glad we made it here. I'm so glad that we stuck it out because I love this movie, I love this franchise, and it's just been a lot of fun rewatching all these movies this month. So, yeah, when it drops, uh, be sure to check out the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome episode with Brian and Kara. It's going to be, you know, we get into we get into the rest of the series and all the craziness that's on display over in Barter Town. So, check us out. Well, the first segment that we have on the after the discussion is Unfortunate Improv, which you know, we debuted a new game, was it last week, I believe, on Dark mm-hmm. Places of Tobin. The new game, Mike's game, Stan Lee Yourself. So if we won a walk-on role into this movie, if we were just in one quick little scene in this movie, where would you be? What would you be doing? Would you have lines? Describe it to us. Jordan, I know you've been gripping your water bottle tightly. Hopefully you've relaxed a little bit as we've talked about it. But Jordan, if you had to put yourself in this movie, how would you how would you Stan Lee yourself into Mad Max Fury Road? So after I first saw this, I very specifically remember thinking that during my lifetime, I have to climb around the outside of a car that is moving so I would stick myself doing that I don't need a line I can totally just be like a stunt person in the background that's what I want to do though you want to play like ship's mast but like in the desert yeah <laughs> well because you know how like they're constantly like you drive and then they just like climb out the window and like they're crawling all over the place that's what I want to do cool real goal that I think I can actually achieve also Chris how would you Stan Lee yourself into Fury Road boy if I'm Stan Lee in the apocalypse there's so many more ways to fuck over Jack Kirby true but instead I will just say I think it would be fun to be what if there was like a tiny car that had like Doof Warrior's bassist on it that's like immediately blown up before it even gets to get out <laughs> 
<laughs> we don't need a rhythm section in the apocalypse. Yeah. Oh, he's got he rides his rhythm section. They're like all the drummers behind him. But there is no bassist. I like the idea of sidecar bass player that just gets immediately annihilated yeah. as soon as they pull out into the desert. Mike, what would you do? How would you Stanley yourself? I guess, you know, I'd have to probably go with being a war boy of some type. I'd probably be the guy who's like, uh, okay, so like they're all lowering the trucks on the chains and everything's going nuts and they're all getting ready. So I'm the guy gassing them up going like, all right, guys, like I'm going to hold down the fort here at the Citadel. Catch you when you get back. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> Just like you left it. Good luck. So then, so that's me. I'm going to be the one they leave behind. You're like the one grown-up warboy that they leave behind to babysit all the little warboys. There you go. Yeah, I'm the nanny. I'm the... <laughs> the manny. I'm trying to think how I would Stan Lee myself into this movie, because I feel like everything I'm thinking of would make me just feel like a terrible character. I feel like I would just be one of the water-hungry people, get, you know, get like a featured extra shot, like, therapy, like, there's so much like hideous makeup in this movie like mm-hmm. the guy who has like the just gigantic feet uh that is just being t- tended to by the the war boys there's Morton joe's like bubbly pussy front like chest and back there is you know the guy with like, the weird jaw and the weird teeth like there's so many mutations and deformities in this world just like make like make me have to be like a real weird looking dude and then just stick me in the front like hunting for water i'm cool with that nice Nice. Uh, so we have an email address on the show, watch at cageclub.me. No email today. We are nearing the end, sort of, kind of, of Watch a Throne. Mike and I this mm-hmm. week outlined the rest of the show in terms of when things are coming out. The end's in sight. Yeah, another 12 episodes, I believe, after this. That'll take us from the Huntsman Winner's War next week all the way through the silver and chrome, the black and chrome wallpapers or whatever in November, on November 16th. Between here and then, we have 12 episodes, I think, so a lot left, but we, we sort of mapped out where we're going to be, what we're going to do. Email us, let us know what you thought of the ride so far, let us know what you thought of Fury Road. If you don't like Fury Road, I guess, let us know, but... Oh, does that person exist? No. Maybe. I'd love to hear do, from yeah, them. Do you think there's someone? <laughs> I don't know. We will, we'll, we'll find out. That guy is a Twitter war boy who just sprays his mouth with, like, spray cheese and yells at women into Valhalla. <laughs> yeah. The last thing we have to do on the show is the awards segment. Now, Mike, you know, a couple episodes ago, we mm-hmm. somehow nominated A Million Ways to Die in the West for 12 things, many of which were positive somehow. Will we surpass that here? Best film, Mad Max Fury Road. Check. Best Charlie's role, Imperator Furiosa. Check. <laughs> Most badass role, Imperator Furiosa. Double check. Best outfit wardrobe? Hmm. Do we count the arm? I mean, yeah, right? Like, sure. she's in full post-apocalyptic, you know, desert garb. She's even got a, she's got like a uh, shoulder pad, like in true Mad Max fashion. I didn't even realize, but she's wearing one. The six one. steampunk goggles, too. Yeah. <laughs> Best non charlie's death in Morton Joe getting his face ripped off? You know what? I might go with the one war boy where he, he first, like, he gets an arrow in his face and chest and then he gets up. And it's he early in the chase. Mm-hmm. Sprays himself and he jumps in slow motion. And they Maybe witness that, him? That guy? Yeah. The first guy we witnessed. Warboy witnessed. I'm going to nominate both because why not? Sure. Best fight. 
I wrote down, there is that fight where when they first sort of come face to face that there is a really long, really kind of gritty Max Furiosa oh, yeah. fight, which is pretty cool. With the chain, he's like chained to Nux still yeah. and everything. That's a that's an awesome fight. Something that, that that video that I saw pointed out, which I never noticed and I loved, is that during that fight, Furiosa attempts to murder Max twice with a gun, like point blank tries to shoot him. Uh, and fails, and the moment that their relationship begins is when he wins that fight and actively chooses to not shoot her when he has the chance, which I never noticed and I absolutely love. I love it. Now, is there a best line? Do we have a best line for Charlize that we want to... Like, there's there's so many good, like, so many good lines in this movie. Is there one of hers that we want to nominate? That's the thing, like, does she have any of the real sort of, like, one-liners? Because, you know, all the stuff like Shiny and Chrome and Witness Me and all the... Those are all the war boys and everything, mostly saying that. But I can't really... I don't know. Well, well, she does She does have... When she... I think it's her. Doesn't she say, remember me, to Immortan Joe when he oh, gets yeah, his face ripped off? Oh, yeah, at the very end. <laughs> that reminded me just because... Reminded me of the end of Coco for some reason. Oh, <laughs> remember boy. Remember okay. me. That sure. song, I mean, Remember Me. Very different, know, but... I know, but it just popped into my head, and I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> I'm just... Some, some other quotes, not hers, that are great that I'm not going to nominate, but, like, he looked at me. He looked right at me. I am awaited. I am awaited in Valhalla. I love just the language. Like, this and Thunderdome do amazing things with language, and just the idea of how language survives after worldwide communication breaks down, and yep. generations are grown up without being educated and stuff, but... I mean, the idea of calling each other half-lifes and stuff and, you know, um, anti-seed for a bullet and the earth being sour. Just like, I just love, you know, the the language in this movie and just in the series in general. And I love the theatricality of it, too. Like when that guy who is sort of sniping at them from afar or like shooting at them with a light and, you know, Charlize hits the light with the last bullet and he goes blind. He's just like, I am the scales of justice, conductor of the choir of death. Sing, Brother Heckler. Sing, Brother Koch. And he just starts just starts shooting blindly. He's like, sing, Brother, sing. It's just like, who is this guy? Like, where did he come? Like, just like, what? <laughs> just madness. And just also, madness. R- right before that is great. You know, Charlize, when she got one bullet left, she just says, don't breathe. And, yeah. you know, that's pretty cool. I love that when he gives the gun to her because he's like, he misses and then he lines it up again and she's like breathing down his neck a little and kind of going like, eh, eh. and he has like the sense to realize we got one shot left. She's yep. probably the better shot. I'm going to, I'm going to like, it's not even that he has any pride or anything like that. It's just, he knows like just she's better than me. I also like, there's like a, I feel like we've probably had a few times in Charlie Theron movies where she's got that like little bit of an aside. They go to drop off the guzzling in that canyon and they're like you said there's gonna be maybe a few vehicles i see three war camps or whatever and she's like just says to herself like yeah well i got unlucky like you know like what like what do you want from me like i'm just i'm trying to give you this but like i got unlucky i like that and the only other line that i have that i really really like it's from one of the wise it might be from rosie where she says is that the wind or is that just a furious fixation you know the war rig like the, oh, all yeah, the, 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 the crews coming party. after them she's the one from neon demon right she's yes. kind no, of no no th- rosie's from transformers 3 abby lee i don't know who says that abby oh, lee the okay. other one is from neon demon yes to me she's like the most interesting of of the five wives cuz she almost seems like a war girl to a degree like she's all pale and has like a kind of yep. skull kind of look to her in a yep. weird kind of way but i really love that i like I like her image in this movie. Best cinematography, best score soundtrack. The score is just, you know, those pounding drums are just... I mean, what more do you need, really? There's a little bit of melody going throughout here, but mostly just, like, whatever. Just play that rock 
guitar over the pounding drums and you've got a Mad Max movie. Now, the only other thing of note, and I want Jordan and Chris's input on this, is there someone other than Charlize we should nominate for best or worst, but probably best, non-Charlize actor, male or female? Do we nominate Tom Hardy? Do we nominate a y, a wife? Do we nominate Nicholas Holt? Do we nominate you know, a Morton Joe? Like, who, who in this movie, or do we not? Like, I mean, you know, the Academy didn't. We don't have to. I think it would have to be Nicholas Holt if it's somebody. Uh, I completely okay. agreed. If, if it's somebody, it's him. He really sneaks up on you how good he is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't expect... I remember the first time seeing this, I did not expect him to last that, like the entire movie, basically. Like, I just thought... He, I mean, I didn't even think I knew it was Nick Holt. I just was like, what is this? They're just going to be, you know, throwing these guys at the problem, and, like, we're just getting a second to meet one of them. But I love how... He gets singled out and developed. And, you know, Jordan, we talked about this last week when we talked about Dark Places where he was in. But do you remember uh, one of the very first episodes of Cage Club Revisited we did, The Weatherman with you, he plays Nicolas Cage's son. Oh, he's one of the kids? I don't remember, I don't remember that. He has an inappropriate relationship with one of his teachers. Yep. I must have blacked it all out. Probably for the best. You blocked out when he <laughs> took his shirt off at the table and his teacher took pictures of him (laughs) are you sure i I didn't are you sure i did that movie yep yeah because it was pretty depressing we were sitting around going man this movie's depressing you had never seen it i do remember that part (laughs) so anything else of the of note in this movie good or bad but probably good that we want to nominate Mad Max Fury Road for? Can you nominate Do For You for something? Uh, yeah, we, yeah, we, we do have a category. A, a uh, very special award. Best to... musician turned actor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, best, I don't, I don't know. Best mutant best freak. Best blind guitarist. Uh, I mean, we could Maybe. give him a special award. I don't know. Like, it just... Like, uh, what category, Joe? We'd have to create, like, some kind of category. Like, I feel like Mighty Joe Young and him can be in the same category um, somehow. <laughs> like Most larger-than-life performance. Like, weirdest character or something. I don't know. Maybe. But as of right now, we have this nominated for 11 categories. Best film, best role, most badass role, best outfit wardrobe, best non-Charlie's death twice... Best Fight, Best Line, Best Cinematography, Best Score, and Best Male Actor Role for Nicholas Holt. Eleven did not, it could not touch the prolific nature of A Million Ways to Die in the West, but really, what can? It's just its, <laughs> that's just its legacy, I guess. It's just its legacy. <laughs> but before we go, uh, I want to thank both Jordan and Chris for being on the show. We will feature, do our little podcast feature of both Wistful Thinking and Now and Again. Now and Again is in the middle of a two-month, sort of four-episode-long journey through Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Songs of the Century so far. That's also going to include the next episode on September 1st. We'll include, I believe, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong or confirm if I'm right, the uh, retrospective of, like, Rolling Stone's cultural significance. Correct. With a friend of multiple Cage Clip shows, Jared Brown. Who was on our Italian Job episode, so check that out. Um, Are you going to watch the Rolling Stone documentary, too? Wasn't there one of those Uh, recently or something? No, I don't don't know uh, if if there is. Uh, But we're mostly going through a list that is um, normally as, as bad as most top 100 whatever lists are but occasionally surprising but will only get worse as it approaches the the top 50 spoilers for next month's episode well i also i mean i really like that list i, I really like the rolling stone list i'm gonna just say it right now you guys are also very critical and negative about a lot of things so of course you wouldn't like it but i enjoy that list so i used to read rolling stone a lot like in the 90s i, don't, I had a subscription to rolling stone <laughs> we, we like the list until the top 10 and then it gets very rolling stony well yeah sure it uh that's fine it had some carly ray jepson on it which is all sometimes all we ask for on that on over and, and again. two robin songs i mean that's come on mm-hmm. and i also feel like 
Annie, I, I just that one song by Annie, like I need to listen to more Annie, but I feel like she is sort of in that pantheon of, you know, the, the Chris, Nico, Joey emotion thread on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like Annie kind of maybe could be in there. Uh, tune in, find out. Ooh. Ooh, ooh. I do remember in high school, my only really memory about Rolling Stone is that, like, when I was a junior, uh, Rolling Stone was offering a 50-year subscription for $99. A (laughs) 50-year subscription? (laughs) And I did not do it. But my my teacher and my friend both did theirs, so... Uh, I remember my teacher was, like, 48 at the time. He's like, he's the only thing that's like, bothers me about this is, like, when I'm 98, I'm going to have to re-up on my subscription to Rolling Stone. But, yeah, 50 years for $100. Oh, man, imagine in 2003, Rolling Stone editors were like, print will never die. Give it, to, give it all away. Give it to them for free. This can't possibly go wrong. <laughs> I know. That's what it was. And we also have Jordan from Wistful Thinking. Jordan, this episode comes out next Friday, which is the day after... Boatcast 3. What's Boatcast 3 going to be? Boatcast 3 is a Nicole Kidman movie called Shit, I forgot what it's called. I love called. that movie. Oh, oh, Dead Calm. Dead Silent. Dead, Dead Calm. Something. Dead Calm. Dead Calm. Oh. That will be the second to last. No, that will be the last Boatcast movie for August, and then we go into musicals. Ooh. Did you hear today that Wes Anderson's next movie is going to be a musical set in, like, post-World War II Europe or something? I did, and somebody somebody good's in it. I don't know that. I believe uh, that, though. I, probably Jeff Goldblum, uh, Bill Murray, a uh, Wilson brother. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't use different actors. Nope. Never mind. <laughs> but yeah, so Boatcast is great. I also, when you guys said you were doing Dead Calm, when you ladies said you were doing Dead Calm, I also sent you a link to an X-Files episode called Dodd-Calm or whatever, which is also on a boat, which is, I guess, named after the movie? I don't know. What I'm more interested in is another Nicole Kidman movie, BMX Bandits, which I really want to watch because oh, yeah. I just That's watched a- Rad and Rad fucking <laughs> ruled. And on the How This Game Made episode, they were like, Jason Manzoukas was talking about how good BMX Bandits is, so another young uh, Nicole Kidman movie. Wow. Yeah, both... Look at her hair. I used wow. to, I watched both of those as a very youngling. I remember renting those at the video, video dynamics, especially that Nicole Googling Kidman this. one. I was like, loved BMXing. Oh Jordan, God. if you want to convince Kara to do BMX Bandits, I would love to do that episode with you. This is wild. This okay. is like when you see the Kylie Minogue video for the locomotion. This is, this is out of control. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Well, you're all welcome. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I can't imagine that I will do anything but love it. And also go see Rad, because Rad is so I, good. I, I think I liked BMX Bandits more when I was a kid, but I haven't watched them in like 30 years. So I was watching Rad on a plane back from Scotland and laughing out loud on the plane just out of pure joy. <laughs> like I was like, this is the best. Send me an angel. So thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Chris, so much for being on here talking about Fury Road for essentially capping off Watch the Throne. I mean, we've got a handful more episodes that are yeah, be but, really but basically, good. this is what we wanted to do it for. Yep. So <laughs> we got here. We made it. <laughs> but thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Is this, I think this might be, I'm trying to load the thing right now. This might be a, oh no, Jordan will be on one more episode. She'll be on Tully in a couple months. So come back for oh, that. Yeah. But this is a series wrap for Chris. So thank you, Chris, for all of your contributions to the Watch the Throne history. I'm very happy I got to be here for Fury Road. And the other movies I was on, I guess. What else? What, what was in my run? Uh, Hancock. Oh, Hancock. Sure. How could we forget Hancock? My other one was Celebrity. Jordan, you were also on Sweet November. Oh, shit. I was on Sweet November. Oh, Chris, you were also on Arrested Development, where your whole face uh, was British. Of course. 
How could I ever possibly forget Wee Britain and my time with Mr. F? <laughs> Mr. F. For all things Watch the Run, all of those episodes, all the episodes that are coming up, everything that we've done, all 39 so far, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, watch at cageclub.me. Let us email you, cageclub.me slash newsletter. The next newsletter is going to go out on September 1st. We'll have a teaser taster sneak preview a hint of such to the two oh. podcasts that Mike and I are going to do next. You heard it right. Two new podcasts. Two new doing. podcasts. Double because, down. And then we will officially announce them on this feed on November 2nd. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we've got cool things coming up. We learned from this podcast. Let's just watch good movies. So hopefully these two new ones will be better than most of what we got through for this podcast. Ugh. I'm Joey Lewandowski. <laughs> and I'm Mike Manzi. And that were that was Jordan Paul and Clark and Chris Mattiello. We'll see you next time as we ride shiny and chrome into Valhalla for the Huntsman Winter's War? Cool, sure, why not? Bye! <laughs>